worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. Welcome back to a cardio nerds case report. This is Amit Goyal, and we are so excited for today's discussion. It is a very unique Cardinals episode with truly a multidisciplinary team of experts such that Dan and I are just going to sit back and learn from our guests today. Today we have with us Dr. Krishma Rahman from Vascular Medicine, Dr. Shu Min Lau from Rheumatology, and Dr. Dean Troops from Vascular Surgery convening together to represent Mount Sinai Hospital and talk about a cardiology case. So you guys, welcome to Cardinals. Please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Parishma. I'm a vascular medicine fellow at Mount Sinai, and I will be starting cardiology fellowship at MGH in July. And vascular medicine is where my interests lie. Hi, everyone. This is Xu Ming. I am a first-year rheumatology fellow at Mount Sinai Hospital. Hi, everyone. I'm Dean Troops. I'm one of the vascular surgery residents at Mount Sinai Hospital, part of the integrated program. So I'll be finishing soon this year and looking for a job now. Wow, Krishma, Shumin, and Dean. What a great multi-D conversation. I don't think we've had a CNCR like this yet, Amit, right? I am so excited and we love New York. Just recently was there, checked it out. I love the skyscrapers, but why don't you all take us to one of your favorite places near Mount Sinai or anywhere so we could discuss a great case of, I guess it's not just cardiology, but vascular medicine and rheumatology and cardiology, wow. I was actually gonna say Central Park. What's your favorite thing to do at Central Park? Yeah, Central Park's pretty big. <laughs> I mean, I usually go there with my dog, so I like going to the, the Fresno Fountain area, just seeing the musicians there play under the little hall, under the little hallway there, so it's very nice. And then just seeing my dog enjoy the grass. It's very peaceful. I couldn't imagine anything better to do right now with our time. We are hanging out with Schumann's dog. Music is in the air. And we're going to discuss a fascinating case. You guys take us through it. So we have a 20-year-old female who comes into clinic with hypertension with a blood pressure of 160 over 80 to 90s over two months. And this is concerning because she first detected her hypertension at age 18. Her blood pressure was really elevated to like the 190s over 100s when she was checking her blood pressure with the home blood pressure cuff. Her history is notable for limited physical activity in her childhood due to lower extremity fatigue and pain after walking or running. But despite this, she had regular childhood checkups and was not told she had any elevated BP measurements, cardiac murmurs, or abdominal bruise. Her evaluation at 18 years old revealed normal inflammatory markers, ESR, CRP, and IL-6 as well as stenosis of the distal descending thoracic aorta and the proximal abdominal aorta concerning for mid-aortic syndrome. She underwent an aortogram with stenting and percutaneous transluminal angioplasty or PTA with resolution of hypertension and has not been on any medications for two years. So the new elevated blood pressures are very concerning for her as well as new lower extremity fatigue on exertion for about two months. She denies any abdominal pain and back pain, fevers, chills, night sweats, and weight loss. And this is kind of where we start. In terms of setting the stage for this case, we really need to go back to two years ago 
So two years ago, she came in with the high blood pressure. They had imaging done that showed narrowing of her aorta and concentric wall thickening. And this is why they got the inflammatory markers, the ESR, CRP, and IL-6, which were all normal at the time. And she underwent stenting and PTA. And Dean, why don't you take it away at this point about the procedure and why she underwent the procedure at that time? Yeah, so thanks for that introduction. So when the patient initially came to us, she had pretty high blood pressures and claudication. And the CT scan kind of showed this supraceliac narrowing. So at this point with her presentation and symptoms, we decided that stenting of this region will help her hypertension, especially in such a young patient. So for the procedure, patient was taken to the operating room by our chief of surgery, Dr. Michael Marin. We obtained femoral access and put in a flush catheter. So the listeners can view on the episode website some videos of the angiogram that was taken. The first video shows there's a severe stenosis in the supraceliac region, and there's multiple collaterals that form around the aorta in this region. Further showing evidence that the stenosis is very severe. And then there's another video showing after the stent was placed, the resolution of stenosis and reduction of collaterals. And there's good flow into the abdominal aorta once the stent was placed. The stent was placed very close to the celiac artery, just because that's what was required for the stenosis. And then postoperatively, we obtained a mesenteric duplex, which showed resolution of the stenosis with a velocity of about 230 centimeters per second at the distal stent edge without any turbulence. This velocity is consistent with resolution of the stenosis because it steps in the celiac artery and there's no turbulence in this region, which has further evidence that there's no stenosis. And then about two years later, the patient was seen in follow-up and was noted to have redeveloped hypertension. And because this was suspicious, she had been controlled. Another CT angiogram was obtained. So have the images also on the episode webpage, which show stenosis of the distal stent edge and a little bit beyond the stent, which is right next to the celiac origin. Because it's next to the stent edge and the stent was a covered stent that was placed, we kind of considered whether this was true restenosis, which you can see after stent places or further development of her disease. So at this point, the patient was referred to the vascular medicine group for further workup. Dean, thank you for taking us through her history, the diagnostic imaging, and eventually the mechanical fix for this problem, right? The stenting and balloon angioplasty. But, you know, we are looking at everything in retrospect and essentially have a cliff notes for what happened two years ago. But if we go back to that moment and we say, okay, who was a primary care physician or the ED physician who saw this patient and, in their office or in their room, right? This is a at the time, 18-year-old with systolic blood pressures of almost 200 millimeters of mercury, right? And we think about 
hypertension, the most common cause is primary hypertension, but there are red flags to consider in triggering an evaluation for secondary hypertension. And onset at a young age is certainly one of those red flags. And imagine the plethora of conditions we may evaluate for, correctation and other mechanical problems, endocrinologic problems, metabolic problems that may lead to secondary hypertension. And the extensive evaluation that probably led to this diagnosis of mid-aortic syndrome. Now, when I think of aortic syndromes and hypertension in a young patient, my mind immediately goes to coarctation, which is a very specific entity and is really not what we're talking about here. So I'd love to learn more about what I think, Dean, you said earlier, Krishma, you said earlier, was mid-aortic syndrome and what that entails as an entity and the etiologies and things like that. Do you guys have any prepared teaching about that? Yeah, so we do. So initially when she was diagnosed, so she did have an extensive workup and aortic stenosis was actually initially found on an MRA cardiac. So she got an MRA chest, not a chest, abdomen, pelvis, because they were looking at the heart and they were looking for aortic coarctation. And because she was like 4'11", she was very tiny. I think they were thinking about congenital heart disease. So they started with an MR angiogram cardiac first, and then they found this stenosis of the distal thoracic aorta. And this is where they were concerned for mid-aortic syndrome. Mid-aortic syndrome is characterized by segmental or diffuse narrowing of the abdominal and or distal descending aorta with involvement of the branches of the proximal abdominal aorta, which can include the renal arteries celiac artery, and superior mesenteric artery. It's very rare. It's less than 2% of all cases of aortic narrowing. And when you think about the causes, you think genetic. So for her, there were consideration for neurofibromatosis type 2, Williams syndrome, Allegel syndrome, tuberous sclerosis, or mucopolysaccharitis dosis. Inflammatory, Takayasu's arthritis, congenital rubella, non-inflammatory, post-surgical fibrosis, radiotherapy, or idiopathic. And going back to the patient case, she actually underwent genetic testing, which was negative for genes and conditions that were secondary or underlying mid-aortic syndrome, as well as congenital heart disease. And then she was clinically ruled out for neurofibroma type 1 because she did not meet the NIH clinical diagnostic criteria, which she also listed. We don't have all the records from two years ago because she was referred to Mount Sinai Hospital specifically for the coarctation as well as for the procedure. So I'm not 100% sure what other workup she went through in terms of ruling out endocrine disorders, but we had a structural cause on the MRA cardiac and then further showed it in the CTHS abdomen pelvis. So we had a pretty clear cause of it. And, you know, I think. One of the things that looking back in hindsight, you know, she had concentric wall thickening of the aorta, which, you know, usually points toward an inflammatory disorder, autoimmune disorder, such as Takayasu's. And at that time, they had done inflammatory markers. So ESR, CRP, and IL-6, and all three were negative. So, and the genetic workup for the mid-aortic syndrome was negative. So everybody at that time felt comfortable following through with the procedure because there was no signs of systemic inflammation. Yeah, very interesting. So as I see it, there are 
like really three main goals here, right? One is to manage her hypertension to protect her end organs from the end organ consequences of hypertension. Two is to treat the blockage itself because that is part of the management of hypertension and then also to get, you know, improved systemic perfusion to her extremities and everything sort of distal to the stenosis. But three is, as you said, this mid-aortic syndrome is not in and of itself a ultimate diagnosis, right? This is a hodgepodge of ideologies. So really the three is to identify the underlying ideology to prevent progression by treating that ideology. So where do we go from here? She comes back in with the re-narrowing. There has been progression. How do we figure out what's going on? So, you know, beyond just stenting again, we can actually get to the bottom of this. Yeah. So that was the question as well. I think the reason why the vascular surgery team ended up sending her to vascular medicine to work up the underlying ideology is because they were also concerned about the restenosis and what was causing it. And going back through all the imaging, including the CTA chest, abdomen, pelvis that they got on repeat when the hypertension reoccurred, you could see very diffuse concentric wall thickening. And this was also around the stent as well as the distal edge of the stent where the stenosis is occurring. So at this time, we did another evaluation for why this is occurring. We got an abdominal aortic ultrasound and mesenteric ultrasound to look at the aorta and the branch vessels again. And you can see the functional stenosis. So imaging this dent, as Dean mentioned prior, right after the procedure, the velocities were around the 230s. There was no turbulence in the distal edge of the stent, showing that the stent was patent and working well versus when we got it this evaluation. You could see clear turbulence at the distal edge of this dent, as well as velocities in the high 600s, showing clear stenosis. So between the CTA, chest, abdomen, pelvis, and the abdominal aortic ultrasound, it was very clear she had a functional stenosis of her stent. And in terms of her physical exam, you know, it was really important for us to measure the blood pressures on both arms to make sure they're equal, to make sure there were no other manifestations of the concentric wall thickening or aortic arterial diseases. And her physical exam was also notable for a very loud epigastric brewery, as well as decreased pulses, the popliteal, the DP and PT pulses, compared to her upper extremity and femoral pulses. So the imaging with the concentric wall thickening was very concerning for aortitis versus periaortitis. So this is where we started the workup. Uh, Schumann, do you want to start adding in about aortitis and what evaluation you would do to find out the underlying ideology? Sure. Thank you, Karishma. Um, so a little bit about definition. So aortitis versus periaortitis, what does that actually mean? So aortitis just means inflammation that's confined to the aortic wall, including the media, intima, or adventitia. Versus periaortitis, that's inflammation from the adventitia outwards into the periaortic space. So with either of these, some things you need to think about, number one is infectious etiologies, things including tuberculosis, syphilis, HIV, bacterial or fungal infections. So that's number one. Some of our inflammatory disorders that we want to think about include large vessel vasculitis, IgG4-related disease, Bechet syndrome, relapsing polychondritis, spondylarthritis, lupus, 
and rheumatoid arthritis. There's also other conditions like our hereditary connective tissue disorders, such as Marfan's, LR Donner's, Lobby Deets. Those, um, you can also see aortitis or periartitis, but usually you would actually see more of an eccentric wall thickening as compared to the concentric wall thickening that we see in this patient. And last but not least, idiopathic. Sometimes you just can't find an etiology for these patients. So I think for this case, just working from the ground up, ruling out, making sure all infectious etiologies are ruled out, and then thinking about some inflammatory disorders might have been missed in the beginning. Um, Schumann, that was very helpful. You know, at this time, given her clinical picture, we're kind of worried about large vessel vasculitis. Can you go over that a little bit so we have an idea of how to assess for it and rule it out? Yes, of course. So under the category of large vessel vasculitis, there are two diseases that come to mind. Number one being Takayatsu's arteritis and number two being giant cell arteritis. So for any of our large vessel vasculitis, um, common presentations include limb claudication, bruise, asymmetric blood pressures, absent pulses, thoracic aortic aneurysms, and a lot of the times, patients actually present with constitutional symptoms, including fevers, weight loss, decreased appetite. So to compare the two diseases, Takayatsu is more commonly seen in female as compared to male, 8 to 1 ratio. Um, the prevalence rate is actually about 40 per million in Japan. And in the U.S., it's actually 0.9 per million. And the age of onset here is much younger, between ages 20 to 40 years old with a median age of about 25. And it's actually more prevalent in Asia as compared to, you can see, the U.S. Common findings with takayatsus, about 80% of the patients, you will hear a brewery, and 60% of patients, you can actually appreciate the decreased pulses. And about 50% of patients, you would appreciate the asymmetric blood pressures. It can affect any of um, the aorta or its major branches and most commonly affects the subclavian artery. As compared to giant cell arteritis, this is more older population, patients greater than 50 years old. And it can also affect the aorta and its major branches, most commonly the carotid artery. And for this patient, she is on the younger side. So large vessel vasculitis is definitely something to think about, especially in a young patient who walks into your clinic with any of the findings such as uh, a brewing on exam, decreased pulses, or asymmetric blood pressure. That was great, Schumann. That's really important to know about the large vessel vasculitis and what the differential is. You know, this patient, while she fits clinically, you know, we know that her inflammatory markers were negative, ESR, CRP, and IL-6. As well, she does not have any systemic symptoms. Are there any other inflammatory disorders that we have to consider in the differential while we evaluate her? Yes. So that's a really good question. In addition to the large vasculitis, something that a lot of people don't think about is our immunoglobulin G4-related disease, which we call IgG4-related disease. And patients can also present with a aortitis or periaortitis sort of picture. And this disease is basically immune-mediated. It's a fibroinflammatory lesion, and it can affect any organ or peri-organ. 
Usually there will be plastic infiltrates featuring IgG4 positive plasma cells. And this disease actually affects males more than females. And the median age is actually between 40 to 70 years old. Common presentations for this, it's actually split up into like four different groups, depending on how the patient presents. Some patients might have a more pancreatic, hepatobiliary sort of disease group versus other patients might have more like a retroperitoneal fibrosis or aortitis sort of picture. And since we're talking about aortitis and periaortitis, usually the vascular involvement, aortitis is less common. We only see in about 8% of the patients. And if it's aortitis, it affects the thoracic aorta more than the abdominal aorta. Versus periaortitis, it's about 20 to 36% of the patients. And usually that affects more of the abdominal aorta compared to the thoracic aorta. So although this patient, she's on the younger side, that is still something we should consider. So coming back to the clinical case, the imaging was very concerning for an aortitis or periortitis. So given all the information that Xiumin gave us, you know, we were really considering the aortitis, periortitis differential. So this is the workup we pursued. We started ruling out the infectious causes. So her HIV, syphilis, and TB were all negative. We resent her inflammatory markers, which were, again, within normal limits. We did an extensive autoimmune workup that you can see on the episode page. But the one thing that did come back positive was that in the IgG subclasses panel, the IgG4 was elevated to 143, which is above the 135 that's a cutoff for diagnosis. So given this information, Schumann, how does this narrow your differential in terms of her underlying etiology for the stenosis? So another great question. So for IgG4-related disease, unfortunately, there's no single diagnostic test for this, but the elevated IgG4 subclass level is concerning. So usually with IgG4-related disease, a level of greater than 135 raises suspicion. And usually we would like to get some sort of either clinical, if patient has any clinical findings versus radiographic findings versus if we're able to get tissue biopsy of something that would be very helpful, but it's not always the case. It's especially tough with vasculitis. So some additional testing we would recommend is checking GE and CBC with a peripheral eosinophil level, because sometimes it can be elevated in our IgG4-related disease. Complements are also very helpful, such as C3, C4, they can be low. Inflammatory markers, sometimes very nonspecific, can be high as well in IgG4-related disease, but not necessary for the diagnosis. And checking a complete metabolic panel as well as urine to evaluate for any renal involvement. And because there is a subset of patients who have pancreatic involvement, just getting some baseline lipase, bilirubin, and A1C to see what that shows. I think most of it, sometimes we do need imaging, just the pan scan, like a CT chest, abdopelvis to evaluate to see if there's any signs of fibrosis or that makes us more concerned for IgG4-related disease. 
commonly we can sometimes see like a retroperitoneal fibrosis, some enlarging mass around an organ that we're not sure what it is. And then at that time, we would recommend a biopsy. And with IgG4-related disease, on tissue biopsy, you would see pathologic features of dense lymphoplasmacytic infiltrates in a storyform fibrosis pattern. So that's a key word. You would see storyform fibrosis pattern. And there's a nice picture of that on the episode webpage. And usually it's more than 40% plasma cells and more than 10 positive plasma cells per high power field. So unfortunately, we can't get biopsy on every patient. And for this patient, it's especially hard because it is around the aorta and it's just not possible, but we can diagnose it based on her clinical features as well. Dean, would you mind talking about the feasibility of getting a biopsy? Now that we have pretty much moved to treat abdominal coarctation with more of a minimally invasive endovascular approach versus open surgery, what is it like in the vascular surgery world regarding how to get tissue diagnosis and treat these patients that might have a very difficult to diagnose underlying etiology of their presenting symptom? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. You know, so many of our interventions are done intervascularly now. So getting a tissue biopsy is so much more difficult. One of the things that we've done in other cases is sort of if we do femoral access is we can take a piece of femoral artery and kind of send the tissue to pathology from a different site, kind of like we do with temporal artery biopsies and other things. But I think in this case, it would really be helpful because we'd need to diagnose the actual area of disease. Another, you know, option is sort of to get an endovascular biopsy, which, you know, in her case would be difficult, especially in the chest. There's high risk of bleeding from getting, it's, it's unfortunately not like a myocardial biopsy, which you can do where there's a thick myocardium to protect from bleeding. It's a little more difficult than the aorta. And then sort of a AR guided biopsy or CT guided biopsy with, you know, needle aspiration or something is also very high risk. So, you know, most interventional radiologists don't take on these types of cases either. So this case is unfortunately very hard to get a tissue biopsy. So unfortunately I can't help you out. Thanks, Dean. That was very helpful. So going back on a little bit what Schumann said, we did get a CBC, but her eosinophils were normal. It was 0.3%. We got compliments as well. And her complement C4, I believe, was actually elevated at 47. And reiterating her ESR and CRP were within normal limits. So the one big diagnostic positive that we had was the IgG4 subclass panel that the IgG4 was elevated. To 143, and that's what led us to the diagnosis of IgG4 reactive disease. Now, Schumann, can you talk a little bit about how you would treat it now that we have a diagnosis? Sure. So, in terms of treatment, the first thing is steroids. So, IgG4 responds usually respond pretty well to steroids. We use prednisone, the dose being 0.1 to 1 mg per kg daily, followed by a taper. And as a steroid-sparing agent, rituximab is the drug of choice. 
and we recommend starting it early for severe disease. There were a few studies that looked at the efficacy of rituximab, one of them being Carothers et al. It was an open-label pilot trial that showed rituximab was actually effective treatment for IgG for related disease, even without steroid therapy. And another one was Ebo et al., which was a retrospective study in France, which showed that rituximab was effective as both induction and maintenance therapy. We have other drugs as steroid sparing agents, such as azathioprine, salsep, methotrexate, but there isn't enough data on that, and it's not first line. And after we start a patient on treatment, things we look out for, we monitor their IgG subclass level, because usually we would see the IgG4 number go down as you treat. Other things to monitor, the CBC, CMP, inflammatory markers, complements, and also as well as imaging. That is something we would recommend repeating, whether it's a CT scan, PET scan, ultrasound, to see the level of stenosis, if it's worsened or if it's improved. And then usually, if the patient doesn't respond to steroids, I think we kind of have to think about, is this the right diagnosis? Because most IgG4-related disease is very steroid-responsive. And in terms of if medical management isn't working, the other option is, do we need to pursue any surgical intervention and I think we'll have to defer that to our vascular specialist team. Yes, to sort of piggyback on Shumin, we actually have been able to control her hypertension on two medications, so nifedipine and carvedilol. On relatively low doses, she's on nifedipine 60 and carvedilol 3.125 milligram twice daily for both. And her blood pressures right now are less than 130 over 80 and her heart rate is in the 80s. And she's, you know, continuing her life as a college student with no concerns. She is now on rituximab amount every six months and her IgG4 levels have improved to 94, which is within normal limits. Now, Dean, I think, you know, Schumann kind of alluded to this, but when would you consider re-intervening on the restenosis? So now that we have a diagnosis, we can think about when to intervene Unfortunately, there's very little data in the literature to guide us about winter intervene, but I think most surgeons would consider the severity of her symptoms as the indication. It seems like now her blood pressure is controlled medically and her claudication symptoms are also, you know, not too limiting. So it's kind of going to be a discussion with the patient about when the symptoms become severe enough or, you know, could her hypertension becomes severe enough to warrant intervention. Obviously, her case is complex, particularly because her aortic stent is just above her celiac artery and her stenosis is just proximal to the celiac. So intervening on that could, you know, compromise the celiac or even worse, you know, she could further degenerate or redevelop stenosis in the mesenteric region which is very difficult to fix vascularly. So if she does go on to progress after another intervention, she'd need a large open operation, which does carry high mortality, unfortunately. So it's definitely a risk-benefit discussion for this patient. 
and not an easy one to decide on when to intervene and when to just, you know, continue to manage her manically. Shuman, do you have any thoughts about how to determine if her IUG4RD is under good control or quote unquote, she's in remission for long enough when it's safe to do a reintervention or she's not actively inflamed? So that's actually a really tough question. So for her, so for some patients who have elevated inflammatory markers, we can use that as an indicator to see if their disease is better controlled or we can look at the IgG4 subclass number and it's coming back down to the normal range. We kind of get a sense. But I think a lot of it will be based on their clinical symptoms. Uh, if their presentation was, say, in our case, hypertension, if her hypertension is better controlled, that would be an indicator that disease is better controlled. Another thing would be repeating the imaging to see if there has been a response to therapy. I think a lot of the therapies we give, including rituxan, it takes time for it to work. The fastest acting medication would be steroids, but say rituximab, it can take eight to 12 weeks sometimes for us to see an effect. So I think before intervening, allowing for medical therapy about maybe three months, reassessing, doing some additional blood tests, imaging, and going from there to decide if this patient needs any surgical intervention or when it is appropriate to intervene, I think, after the medication has had time to work. I think sometimes what can happen is if a patient has very severe disease where there is concern for an organ failure, or damage, I think you may have to go in and intervene earlier before we have time for the medical therapy to work. Luckily for her, there was no end organ damage. Her kidney function, liver function were normal on testing. And in terms of imaging on the CTA, chest, abdomen, pelvis that we got during her current evaluation, it was very clear that her major manifestations within the aorta around the stent and she didn't have any extra aortic manifestations that we were concerned about. We are currently following her with abdominal aortic and mesenteric ultrasound to look at her stent and her velocities which remain elevated with turbulence in the 600s which go with the fact that you know she's still hypertensive requiring medications and we're planning on repeating the CTA, chest, abdomen, pelvis to assess the structural inflammation to see if it has decreased from prior or stabilized, as well as doing an ABI with exercise to assess the severity of her claudication to have another measure that we can follow and sort of maybe see if it gets worse if we intervene sooner. So that's currently where we are in her clinical course. Wow, Krishma, Shumin, and Dean, that was a phenomenal discussion. And again, somebody may have mentioned this earlier, but here we have a young woman presenting with hypertension and we identify, you know, a culprit vascular lesion that's leading to this hypertension in her clinical presentation, address it, fixing it. But then she has this recrudescence and then ultimately a diagnosis is made. And that's a pattern seen with IgG4 related disease. And so, you know, as we come to the conclusion of our discussion. Do you have any pearls or takeaways that we should all remember and sear into our minds? Yeah, thanks, Dan, for that opening. I think the biggest thing I would like people to get away from this case is that 
you know, with patients with concentric aortic wall thickening, even if the inflammatory markers such as ESR, CRP, and IL-6 are normal, there should be a high degree of suspicion for underlying aortitis or periaortitis. So they should have a more extensive workup, including for infection and IgG4-related disease, just to make sure that we do a very thorough rollout of any reversible causes that might need medical management before procedure. I think Schumann and Dean have done a really great job of going through why it's so difficult to diagnose some of these cases because the clinical case might not match with the medical data that we have, as well as, you know, the structural issues can be, you know, difficult to address depending on the underlying etiology. So I think that's really the key takeaway I want people to get through is that normal inflammatory markers does not mean it's not aortitis or something underlying that needs to be reversed first. Karishma, Shumin, and Dean, thank you so much for bringing up this really fabulous case that illustrates the power of working as a team of multidisciplinary experts to take care of this patient with a very unique and rare diagnosis. I think all the points you made were spot on. And really, I think what I take away from this is humility because mid-aortic syndrome is not something that I had in my vocabulary until today. So again, thank you so much for bringing this to Cardiners. And I also want to express a lot of gratitude for your patient for teaching us all about this. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This was great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for letting us join our podcast today. Dr. Daniela Kadian Dodoff is an assistant professor and program director of the Vascular Medicine Fellowship at the Zena and Michael A. Weiner Cardiovascular Institute and the Marie Jose and Henry R. Kravis Center for Cardiovascular Health of the Mount Sinai Medical Center. She and her colleague, Dr. Jeffrey W. Olin, are integral in the study of fibromuscular dysplasia and its overall overlap with spontaneous coronary artery and cervical artery dissections. She is a master clinician who has been able to diagnose rare arterial disorders ranging from vasculitis, IUD4RD, to fibromuscular dysplasia and different inherited disorders. But more than that, she has been such a great mentor to me during the vascular medicine year. She has really had a very significant influence on the way I approach patient care and diagnosis and to keep a very broad diagnostic perspective and differential because the patients that we see in our clinic are very complicated and have rare presentations. So you have to avoid anchoring as much as possible. And she's been great in teaching us that. Hi, it's my pleasure to be here with you today. My name is Daniela Kadian Dodov. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. I'm also the program director for the Vascular Medicine Fellowship here and a vascular internist myself. I want to thank Dr. Karishma Rahman and her colleagues in rheumatology and vascular surgery for presenting a really fascinating case of IgG4-related disease in a young patient with early-onset hypertension. I have a couple comments to make on this case, aside from what you've already heard. First is in regard to young patients presenting with hypertension. You heard it's very important to consider secondary causes, and I would do so for any patient age 40 or younger. That would include vascular imaging with at least a renal artery duplex to start, in addition to a biochemical evaluation for primary hyperaldosteronism, 
hypercortisolism are other known causes of secondary hypertension. Now, this patient was found to have isolated concentric wall thickening involving the descending thoracic and abdominal aorta. This raised concern early on for vasculitis. And I think very important to know about large vessel vasculitis or aortitis in this case is that it's very, very difficult sometimes to determine disease activity. There's no standard criteria to determine disease activity, and this usually requires a combination of features, including clinical symptoms, and typically we're thinking about pain in the area of vascular inflammation, and B symptoms, including fevers, night sweats, weight loss, etc. Additionally, biochemical markers, including inflammatory markers, which in this case were negative and pointed away from disease activity, and then imaging findings. And imaging findings Really, when we're talking about disease activity, it means we're looking for dynamic changes over time. So for this patient who had a new diagnosis of concentric wall thickening with no comparison, but negative inflammatory markers and no real features of pain, it was more difficult for the team at the time of initial diagnosis to determine whether or not her disease was active and that she was treated with the assumption that she was not active and went on to be stented. As we saw, she represented later on with restenosis of the distal edge of the stent and area distal to the stent with new onset hypertension after intervention again. I think one thing that may have been helpful at the time of diagnosis had vascular medicine been brought in initially would have been a PET scan at the time of diagnosis prior to intervention. PET CT is very sensitive for disease activity. It can be quite difficult sometimes to determine real inflammation from, you know, artifact. For example, in your older patient who has a lot of atherosclerosis, it will light up. And in patients in whom have had intervention, it may light up simply from remodeling from the intervention. But in this patient's case, at the time of diagnosis, pre-intervention, I think it would have been a useful test. Had it been negative, it would have definitely pointed away from disease activity. Had it been positive, uh, there may have been more aggressive approach to making sure that she was medically optimized prior to intervention. Uh, the other comment is when you're seeing a patient with aortitis, it's very important to dig and figure out what the root cause is. Because aside from the inflammatory vasculitides that you heard about mentioned in the presentation today, including Takayasu, giant cell arteritis, there is this IgG4-related disease which can involve any part of the aorta, but pretty classically the abdominal aorta in the perirenal area and the aorta iliac area. And then isolated aortitis in which no identifiable cause is determined. But there are also infectious etiologies. And so doing a workup to make sure that the patient does not have disseminated TB, especially for this patient who had immigrated from Pakistan, that was very important for us to do prior to initiating in any immunosuppression as well as syphilis in terms of other causes of infectious aortitis. Once she was found to have the elevated IgG4 level, she was appropriately placed on rituximab for her disease. The one other comment I want to make about coming to her diagnosis is that even if the IgG4 level had been normal, it would not exclude the presence of IgG4-related disease. There are many patients with IgG4-related disease who are identified only on histology after biopsy and in whom the serum IgG4 levels are normal. So in this case, I think the fact that her IgG4 levels were elevated, 
even if just above the threshold for normal of 135, I think hers was 143, it points to the diagnosis and I think is the one that fits her best given her presentation. And we have seen some improvement in her levels with rituximab treatment, further supporting that she's now on correct therapy. Now, the other comment I wanted to make in terms of the differential for mid-aortic syndrome was the comment on hereditary connective tissue diseases. So these don't typically cause a quote-unquote mid-aortic syndrome. What you can see for these patients is narrowing of the aortic area in the belly, not from wall thickening, but from dissection with intramural hematoma. So one thing to look out for when you have patients with imaging in whom vasculitis is being called, you need to make sure that there is truly concentric wall thickening for those patients and not eccentric wall thickening that would point more towards a dissection rather than a vasculitis. But bottom line, I think in terms of key takeaways for this case, keep your index of suspicion high for the strange, especially when you're seeing young patients presenting with symptoms or those that do not have traditional atherosclerotic risk factors. You need to think outside the box, keep your differential broad and don't pigeonhole yourself early. Second, I would say get help. Multidisciplinary care undoubtedly leads to better care for our patients. I would review the imaging with the radiologist um, if you're not used to looking at it yourself and get input from as many people as you can so you can come to um, a concluding diagnosis that's best for your patient. And finally, when it comes to intervention for vasculitis, any surgical or endovascular approach has really been reported in these patients. The best outcomes occur in those that have controlled disease. So as best as you can, you want to control the disease before you intervene. Um, but it is a multidisciplinary discussion as to when to intervene, typically led by patient symptoms and refractory symptoms to medical therapy and the, the risk and benefit to your individual patient. And with that, I thank you so much for featuring a vascular medicine case on Cardio Nerds. It's great to be a part of this. And thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to another Cardio Nerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Chelsea Amo Twinboa. I'm an intern in the Cardio Nerds Academy, House of Tossing, and a resident at the Stony Brook University Hospital in Stony Brook, New York. Check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode or show informative, please consider subscribing to Cardio Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All Cardio Nerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by the Cardio Nerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split. Boop. Boop.